0: Hello everybody, welcome. My name is Vivian Schiller and I am Executive Director of Aspen Digital. We are a program of the Aspen Institute and you are joining us for the latest episode of Disinfo Discussions. This is our series of conversations with experts on all angles and aspects of myths and disinformation. This uh, series is hosted by the Aspen Institute and it is being produced in tandem with our Commission on Information Disorder. So today I am very happy to be speaking with Amy Webb. Amy is a futurist and the founder and CEO of the Future Today Institute. She is also an adjunct assistant professor at the New York University's Stern School of Business and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlanta Council. So welcome Amy, thank you for joining us today.
1: Hey Vivian, it's good to see you.
0: Yeah. So Amy, uh, just, you know, for more context, really, you know, looks around corners, which is why we, I was so eager to talk to you, Amy, Um, you know, new, we want to talk about new and future disinformation threats that we should be anticipating, and what kind of measures we think society should be thinking about today, uh, so we don't get caught flat footed by whatever Fun and games and horrors—the next uh, uh, set of technologies brings when it comes to misinformation. Mis- dis- Not that all technologies bring bad things, but that has been known to happen. But before we get into the conversation, let me just ask you briefly to explain.
1: And I'm sure you get this question a lot. What is a futurist? Sure. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. A futurist, uh, somewhat counterintuitively does not make predictions. So I'm not in the predictions game. I'm uh, mostly responsible for reducing uncertainty. So futurists use data um, and build models to try to understand plausible future paths. Um, Some people do this more heuristically. I work much more with quantitative data. Um, And the goal is to try to find emerging forces, signals, and trends that help us get a better sense of what's happening, and then to use those data to model plausible next-order outcomes. Um, The result of that work, in my case, are strategic scenarios that um, executives and boards of directors use to try to figure out what big bets to take, uh, what big risks they want to approach, and then develop the incremental pathways to get there.
0: So we wanna get into those strategic scenarios. That's exactly what we wanna talk about. But before we look ahead, I wanna just take a look back uh, because as you point out, your, your job is not, there's no crystal ball involved. You're actually looking at evidence-based reality at data to try to anticipate uh, where things are going. So, you know, if we taking a look back when social media first really took off, what now, 15 years ago or so, if you recall, cause we were both uh, around then and paying attention sort of a lot of the outlook was kind of all hearts and roses. So social media was gonna democratize the world and bad information would be drowned out by a flood of good information and corrections with so many watching, it would all, everything, every all of these platforms would bring out our better angels. Um, we sort of all looked at the Arab spring and thought, well, this is just the beginning of a worldwide trend towards uh, movement towards democracy. Fast forward, it didn't really work out that way. Instead, we in this country are more polarized than ever. You know, we are now dealing with QAnon and the big lie and insurrections, um, the opposite of the democratization of the world. So, So the question is not so much what went wrong, because that would take us longer than we have today, but why did we not see this? How was
1: this not anticipated or was it? Well, I think it depends on how you define we, and that's So just a couple of quick things. There's there's a phenomenon in the hard sciences known as the dual use dilemma, and this is where um, a technology, for example, CRISPR, um, is developed and may have off-label unintended or potentially really dangerous other uses. Meaning, while the technology was intended to edit the genome uh, or edit individual genes in ways that could help uh, curb the spread of malaria through mosquitoes, for example, that very same technology could be weaponized. Um, and you know, this is certainly true when it comes to information technology. I think the trick here is trying to resolve the tension between um, our desire to create utopian futures through, through new technologies and the harsh realities that at some point dual use comes for every technology. Um, And and that should have been apparent during the product development process. Um, At least, I mean, we can talk about Twitter um, first, but but this is certainly true of every network. Um, You know, the founders of Twitter, as you know, uh, came from the world of blogging. Um, And so by the time that the architecture for Twitter was being developed, we already saw what happened in the, in the blogging universe. And, and quite frankly, even before the blogging universe uh, existed, we saw the rise of leaflets and pamphlets. And I mean, people have always tried yeah. to change information in ways that suited their personal beliefs or, or buoyed their, their cherished beliefs, right? Um, so I think the challenge is not, how did we not see this coming? Um, I think the challenge is, why did we see this coming and choose not to do anything about it? Mm. And and the answer to that question has to do with business models. Um, I absolutely saw this coming. I was at the State Department talking to some people, uh, some of the undersecretaries about this in 2011, 2012. Um, And that was already pretty sort of late to the process. Um, So the trick is, I understand that we want uh, we want to democratize and enable the free flow of information. Um, but the reality is that humans are no longer entirely in control of that process. We have designed systems that are intent, that, that, are, that, are, that have been developed to, to autonomously make decisions, but also to try to get us um, to contribute more of our attention. So we've got a bunch of competing interests here. And the challenge has always been, but certainly will be going forward, um, how do we resolve our um, our desire to create these utopian futures, we keep moving on to new pastures, right. With the real world need of making money, um, and, and therefore attention.
0: So it's not a matter you're saying of, you know, our, our better angels or our worst instincts. It's about models that might net might play into.
1: Yeah. And I mean, some of this, some of this has to, you know, some of this has to do with product development. Um, every new information serving product, whether that is an algorithm or an application, should have um, a, a part of that process where responsible scenarios are d- developed. Meaning, if we enable this feature, if we do this thing, if we, you know, if we launch whatever it is, what are all of the horrific uses that we can right. imagine now? It doesn't mean that it derails the project, um, but if you can do the risk modeling in advance, um, then you can at least identify and begin to develop strategies to mitigate those problems. Or better, you come up with additional products and services um, that, you, that you can either monetize or just have at the ready when it's time. Um, but there's an abject resistance to doing this at, at um, most of the technology companies that I've ever worked with or talked to. Well, um, we do I'll not see do. the same when it comes yeah. to certain parts of corporate America where I spend most, most of my time. Um, that there is a strong desire to do that risk modeling in advance because they want to thwart uh, potential challenges down the road. But, you know, I think a lot of the misinformation enabling technologies that exist are coming from a place of we're going to build it first and apologize later if and when there's a problem. And that's simply irresponsible. Move things, uh, move fast and break things. I think it's more than move fast and, and break things. I, I, I think that original ethos has been long gone. I, I think mostly what I'm seeing is, we know we're doing something that's potentially problematic, we're gonna do it anyways, and, and hope at some point that it's not really a problem. And if it is, we'll ask for forgiveness later on.
0: So you're suggesting the difference between those companies that do the risk modeling and those who don't, maybe some of the platforms, is the risk modeling for the platforms, let's say for Facebook, for example, is in conflicts with business growth. Whereas maybe for some of like the companies that you work with who are not technology uh, companies, it's essential
1: for their future business. I, would, I, would, I, would, I would say there are three buckets. Um, I would say that the risk modeling is essential to business growth. However, I think there's a sense, especially in highly competitive industries, or if you're dealing with a bunch of shareholders that are antsy and wanna see faster progress, Um, my observation is that any type of risk modeling in advance will slow down whatever product roadmaps there are. Um, and maybe this is a good time to delineate how I see, how I think about time and how others think about time. Um, so most organizations operate around a timeline, whether that's a strategic plan. So your strategic planning cycles are three to five years or a, a product group uh, has, a, has a roadmap or governments, a lot of governments use roadmaps and they're sort of marking time in a linear way. The challenge with a linear time frame when you're doing, uh, when, when you're working in, in a situation where you don't have absolute certainty about the future um, is that you, you don't leave any fire breaks. Uh, you don't have any room in there for uh, any new information to, to come into play. So if you've got a product that has to launch and you got to keep to a timeline. That's fine, but if we're talking about the exploration of something new, meaning somebody's got a new idea for a product or a service or whatever, and you're now developing that, you know, the development piece of this, whether it's thought leadership or the product or service itself, there's a certain amount of time that gets dedicated to that, and then you hit the product roadmap. Here's what has to happen: um, you you have to leave room for ambiguity, uncertainty, and and chance. So I don't, you know as a futurist, I don't use a timeline, unless we're talking about a discrete project that has certain deliverables. I instead use a time cone, it's a different shape, but it acknowledges in the present where the, uh, the vectors, the axes intersect, that this is the most certainty we're ever gonna have. And the further out in time we go, we have to account for new data that, that doesn't yet exist, or at least it, we are not privy to in, in the moment. Um, so, so that, that timeline becomes a cone and it widens the, the further out into the future you go, it doesn't mean that you don't, don't take action on that future. It simply means in the present, we can take tactical actions because we have information that can be acted upon, but the further out we go, we have to take in this additional information and be willing to make adjustments, right? So every product, every service, every and and quite frankly every strategic plan the strategic plan comes next so it goes tactics and then strategy but that has to fit into the vision of the product service or organization and then ideally your executives are thinking about transformation how does all of this evolve what i see happening in nearly in most companies but certainly in the tech sector with the exception of maybe amazon is oscillating between tactics and strategy. I see very few executives, very few organizations that are willing to go farther out and think about long-term transformation. And that I think is responsible for the misinformation catastrophe that we're living through.
0: Because they are too tactical and not thinking through the longer term.
1: Right, and some some of that is market driven. So some of that it's out of your hands. Um, You know, the street doesn't like R&D. And so there's not a lot of uh, wiggle room for companies that want to do basic research to explore potential off-label uses or knock-on effects of algorithms or products. So that's a problem. I blame investors for being antsy. Um, But there's also a certain amount of, and I guess this gets back to the the three different companies I mentioned. There are companies that see longer-term modeling as a critical component to growth, and it is. Um, there are companies that believe any type of risk modeling is just going to derail them or it's like somebody coming in and saying no, um, which is obviously not the case, but, uh, but there's that. And then there's the other company group that understands the power of doing this work and is terrified of being opened up to a class action lawsuit in the future. I've run across, across that a couple of times um, that legal and risk, your CROs and your, your chief legal officers... Um, get real nervous when a company starts doing risk modeling. Um, because, and again, I think this is a, the wrong interpretation, but they become nervous that at some point in the future, somebody's going to turn around and sue them. Um, we haven't seen any precedent for that in a courtroom uh, where the work of risk modeling in, in futures was damaging to a, con- a company in the longer term. But, you know. Which tech companies are doing it right? Um, I know this is an unpopular opinion, but it's obviously Amazon. Um, Amazon, Jeff Bezos, for all of his foibles, uh, I think is our, our, our greatest, uh, truly visionary long-term thinker. Um, now, you could argue that the, the tactics piece of this, as it exists in Amazon warehouses, um, is awful for some people, um, but it's very difficult here, let me give you a concrete example because I think it fits into misinformation. So pretty soon, uh, if not already, by the time you're listening or to this or watching it, Amazon sidewalk will be legal in the United States. It'll be on. Legal probably wasn't the right word. This is a, a mesh network operating at the scale of a neighborhood. So basically, if you're not familiar, a mesh is a, a closed network where uh, all of the connected devices pool their connectivity resources. Um, and you can operate these things a half mile, mile. Um, and the purpose of this is to share data between those devices. And also if one device goes, goes offline, um, it, can, it can harvest compute and connectivity from another part of the mesh. Um, so there are some practical implications here that are pretty interesting. Hong Kong. Uh, if you remember the the democratic protests that happened, at some point the government shut off the internet, and a mesh network took over instead, so that the protesters could continue to be connected. So that's great. Um, in another use case, you know, if you've if you've got a tag or a beacon, a tile, for example, on your phone, on your keys, on your kid, and they're in the mesh, you would always know where they are. So that's really interesting. But let's take this another step further. Um, After COVID, a lot of cities in the United States were thinking about using smart cameras so that they could track people and determine uh, do they have elevated uh, temperatures, do they have respiratory issues, as a way of tracking who might be spreading COVID around. I don't know what the plan was after that, if they were going to have COVID police come and round people up. Um, But... Okay, so that didn't pass. Uh, Westport, Connecticut tried to launch a bunch of security cameras. There were a bunch of cities. It didn't go anywhere because overwhelmingly in the United States, there's a fraught relationship between third-party vendors and tech companies and city councils for many reasons. So we don't have a lot of smart city activity in the United States. Now, this is where Amazon, I think, is doing a brilliant job of thinking about long-term transformation. If you're in a neighborhood, as soon as sidewalk gets turned on, which by the way, you have to op at, opt out of mm. versus the other way Most around. people don't do. Yep. Yeah. Um, you've got connected, you've got ring cameras. Half my neighbors have ring cameras. Um, you've got people with Alexa devices. You potentially have people wearing Alexa, uh, halo um, wristbands. There's a lot of different devices that are connected to that network. So here's my question. Isn't that a smart city? being built by the ground up by Mm. consumers opting in. Amazon has figured out how to get people to build smart cities, smart city Mm. infrastructure by buying their devices. And then Amazon is facilitating the relationship between the devices and the law enforcement agencies who who pay a premium to to access that information and use some of the AI systems that are at AWS to do the recognition piece. Mm. Brilliant, Mm. brilliant. Use of technology and loopholes, and it's all because of consumers opting in through their wallets.
0: Raises Amazon a bunch is
1: publishing of- something yeah. that very few city councils or towns in the United States have managed to do for a decade.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. It raises, of course, a whole bunch of privacy issues and considerations. But maybe let's let let's 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 hold on that conversation or, or have that a little bit later. I want to just um, now shift gears and look at. Uh, Technologies that you expect along the lines of what you're talking about with mesh networks, you know, as part of that that Amazon has basically had us cobbled together for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about other technologies that will be more ubiquitous in our lives over the next five to ten years, and their relationship, and uh, that uh, particularly those that have to do with information sharing, whether that mm-hmm. is um, uh, uh, consumer generated information or or other forms. In other words, we're trying to anticipate what are the myths and disinformation challenges, in addition to all of the challenges that we're having today.
1: So, what what are some of those technologies that we should be that we should be paying attention to now? Sure, let me give you a, a very near term, in my world, near term, five years, and then I'll give you a longer term, which would be maybe ten years or longer. Um, so, in the nearer term, everybody knows the phrase the Internet of Things. Um, there's an emerging subset of that called the U of Things, or at least that's what I call it. These are all of the devices that are wearable, implantable, um, that use your biometric data to understand information about you and try to help you get through your day. So this is more data about you and derived from you, um, but, that, but that leave your body and go somewhere else. So this would be, and there's a constellation of devices. This ranges from smart glasses, which I know everybody's got sour memories of Google Glass, but what's coming to market looks a lot like what I'm wearing versus mm-hmm. what you've seen in the past. And is much more about assistive technology versus taking pictures with your with your lenses. Um, we built a model showing this in 2018. And I, there was a lot of resistance to that model because not only did it say uh, we'll wear devices, um, it also said that we will be using our, our smartphones less, that the rate of uh, the new rate of penetration would be declining, which of course it is. Um, you know, and there's many reasons for that. But the question is, what does this mean going forward? Um, there, there's uh, the, the rate of myopia, which is nearsightedness, is through the roof. And that was already happening, but it's accelerated because of COVID. Because you got a bunch of people doing what we're doing right now, which is staring at each other through a screen. Our eyes weren't designed um, to, to, to operate in this way. Lots more people will be already needing to wear glasses. So that's an accelerant to the smart glasses market, Um, among other things like wearable health health monitors and and there's connected bed technology. Um, You can can rig together a smart bed for yourself that will automatically monitor your temperature and respiration while you sleep and nudge your limbic system and your respiratory system um, to, to increase or decrease your temperature, your resting heart rate, stuff like that in a way to optimize your sleep. So there's all these devices that are coming to market, we tend to think of misinformation as coming from a third party um, to, to muck with an election, right, stuff like that. What, what happens when the misinformation is your own information, right? I could imagine somebody hacking into all of the smart beds, for example, and telling everybody that they had great sleep, um, that they've, they're optimized, because some of them already do this, right? You're optimized for a great day. And you may feel like crap, <laughs> but you're, you're now being told, hey, you just had the most restful sleep of your life. Some people may believe that and get behind the wheel of a car before it's automated and get into an accident, um, you know, or whatever else. Uh, so I think that we should start thinking about misinformation as not just connected to traditional news, but also information that that shows up in other ways. And that leads me to my long-term. Uh, thing that you should be paying attention to. So the short story on this is um, when scientists tinker with genes um, for the purpose of switching different genes on and off in a cell, um, uh, for all different types of purposes, they they tend to digitally watermark them. It's a way of distinguishing what exists in nature from what's been edited or tinkered with. Um, so about a year ago, not too long ago, uh, one of the preeminent, um, synthetic biologists and his team, uh, booted up that they created a cell, um, that, that, had a minimum genome, but very, very small cell. Uh, and it was not derived from nature. It was developed by a computer system. So this is a life form that doesn't have other life forms as parents. Its parents was a a computer, were a computer. Anyways, the digital watermark that they used was um, an Oppenheimer quote. They put 46 names of people who worked on the team uh, into this this, using genetic code, right? But they also used a quote from James Joyce um, from a portrait of the artist as a young man, to live, to err, to fall, to triumph, to recreate life out of life. So, the Joyce estate is super litigious, and they didn't get copyright clearance in advance. They didn't ask for permission. And so, now here's an interesting question that they, you know, like there is no way to send a cease and desist letter to somebody sharing information, whether it's correct or incorrect, inside of a cell. I know this sounds insane. However, one of the companies that is doing a lot of the work in treating biology as nature's hard drive is Microsoft. The, the big tech companies are all in the big biology space. And what's interesting is it's plausible that sometime between now and the year 2031, we could be spreading misinformation genetically. Um, and I know that sounds, I know that feels like sort of inconsequential given, especially what we've dealt with over the past <laughs> and are dealing with um, you know, over the past year or two but this is one of these really important questions because in this country we don't come up with the regulatory ideas in advance. We wait until somebody's done something wrong, right. and then everybody scrambles to play catch up,
0: and often they, too late. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Now there's another way to do this. The government of Dubai has an like a incubation lab that's like an R and D pilot program for laws, um, just like they in regulation, just like others do technology. So, so they are coming up with that right now, they're working on like, what would a beta product in the form of regulation be to cover drones? Before they actually try to write the regulation and figure out what it is, they're beta testing it. That's such a smart, smart (laughs) idea. And they're doing it alongside the technologists, right? Totally different way of thinking about, about this. So the gene editing, they'll come back to that. So aside, what would be,
0: like an example of a miss or disinformation risk, aside from a copyright violation mm-hmm. from the James Joyce estate, understood, respect copyright. But what would be like, help us imagine what, I don't mean to be all doom and gloom, but like what's a worst case scenario? What's an oh, example I, I of Oh, I got corollary? Your on
1: that. <laughs> what's that? Um, so here's a really weird malware problem. Okay. Um, so. I'm, we would need much more time for me to get into the technical specifications of how all of this works. So just work with me on this. Okay. Um, so, uh, so imagine you're a biotech uh, bio, like a scientist working in a biotech lab and you're tinkering with uh, cells and trying to get, get them to do different things. These things don't even have to be interesting. It can be something as simple as getting a, an E. coli to produce some, uh, some, some, you know, proteins that, that do cool stuff, uh, make your beer glow in the dark. Not that thrilling. Now, um, what if a bad actor figured out how to get malware onto the computer, a new kind of malware, right? Where this is being developed. And as that group of scientists sends their DNA code to a a foundry or a company that's designed that, that there are companies where they'll they'll accept the code and then they'll put together the fragments of DNA and and sort of send you back your actual physical genetic material. So if you've ever used a 3D printer, it's akin to sending your computer generated design to that printer and then getting a physical thing in response. So same is true of biology. At any rate, imagine a bad actor going in and obscuring um, uh, and hiding malware inside of genetic code and doing it in such a way that bypasses some of the screening processes, because this is usually a very secure system, um, and then changing that code ever so slightly. So that the time that the original scientist gets that genetic information back in the form of a real world sample, it's now a pathogen. Um, that actually was like somebody did that on paper, a, 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 a team of scientists at the University of the Negev. And so I read that. And, you know, that is very dangerous misinformation. Um, okay. What's that? I said, I would say, yeah. Yeah, now here's the rub. So I was like, this is bad. <laughs> who would be, like, if this ever actually happened, Who who is in charge of that? So I start calling around to some friends at state, at Department of Defense, Navy, Air Force, I'm just calling, like, congressional staffers that I'm friends with. And I was like, hey, here's a weird question for you. In the event of a cyber biological attack, because we're reeling right now with normal cyber attacks, right? Once this goes bio, oh, who's in charge? And the answer is we don't have anybody in charge or something like that. There's nothing yet.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. So again, I misinformation, I think it would benefit us all to broaden how we think about the spread of misinformation and disinformation in the future. I would argue that what we are dealing with today is messy and difficult to contain, but nowhere near as challenging as it's about to be. And we have an opportunity now to, and I think that's the point of what you're doing, Vivian, (laughs) to stop and say, let's really think about um, concrete steps that we can take. Uh, But the concrete steps are only gonna get us so far if we lock ourselves into that timeline thinking. Um, So the truth is there's new data every day. There are new developments every day. We have to be willing to work every single day on on different permutations to address this very broad challenge of misinformation, which doesn't respect local jurisdictions or even countries at this point, and pretty soon is gonna jump from the digital world into the physical world in ways that people aren't even thinking about yet.
0: Well, you've led me right into uh, the, our, our, my final question, which we're asking it to everybody in this series. Um, so these, as, as it's mentioned at the top, these conversations we're having are intended to inform the members of the Commission on Information Disorder, as well as the general public, of course. So as the commissioners now are deliberating, what are the emerging disinformation threats to prioritize and uh, a- a- as well as solutions or recommendations for government, for the private sector, and for the civil society. What are those? What should be the top priorities um, in terms of the kinds of emerging technologies and your cone-shaped trajectory that you've yeah. uh, you've illustrated for us?
1: So there's more to my job than than figuring out what's next. It's also yeah. uh, strategically, what do you do about that? When you're dealing with um, complex, there's, when you're dealing with tremendous Tremendous amounts of complexity, systems level complexity. So my answer would be, um, what are you know? What how do you define transformation? What does the transformation scenario look like? And how have you worked backwards from that? I think the problem is when organizations react to things that have just happened. Um, there's this expression about you know continually fighting yesterday's war, or the great bane of um, of incrementalism. You have to keep your eye on what's plausible in the farther future and work backwards from that um and so what i would say is what does that transformation look like what are the best possible outcomes um have you thought broadly enough and then if the answer to those questions if you've got actual answers to those questions then i would say um how can you prioritize wins in the in the very near future because the biggest Obstacle, I think, to the success of any commission um, or any effort dealing with misinformation is going to be uh, alignment and momentum. Um, I'm having similar conversations with WEF and with diff- different organizations that are all trying to tackle the same thing. Um, you've got misalignment. Sometimes misalignment winds up in uh, apathy, and then you don't get anywhere. Um, so I would look for easy, early wins that build good, strong alliances where. Um, everybody recognizes that there's going to have to be some sacrifice for the, for the greater good. And everybody's incented um, to, to make those sacrifices. Whatever that is, prioritize that first yeah. and work on that while, so you got to work simultaneously in the present and the future. I'd, get, I'd knock that stuff off, get a bunch of early wins, keep your eye on the prize, which is that, that great transformation.
0: That's exactly what we hope to do. That's perfect. Amy Webb, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Um, You've uh, been suitably uh, scary, but uh, also there's a lot to think about and and look at. So thank you again for joining us. Thanks. Uh, All right. Bye.